the Gold Real Business Show is it, it's given us and given the business a voice to say what the Scottish economy could be. I hope that driving enterprise and business is at the heart of whoever is running any government. We believe in people striving, working hard, taking on people, creating the jobs. And we have to make it that we are so attractive for people to come here and to open businesses. But at the moment, it looks like when you listen to startups and scale-ups, it's the opposite. The Go Radio Business Show with Hunter and Hockey. Hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Good morning, Thomas. Good morning, Willie. How are you? Oh, brilliant, brilliant. Apart from the weather. I've been this weather all week. Shocking. It's a bit cold in the trossocks, as they say. <laughs> Is that what you're calling them? Right, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, we, we, we had a couple of topics last week that have kind of run on and run on this week. Uh-huh. Obviously, we started off last week with our global business show talking about China. Yes. And that's obviously get worse and worse. Right, so what's been happening? You, you're my China expert, Willie. Well, the largest property company in the world, Evergrande, uh-huh. certainly the largest property, indebted property company in the world, has been threatened by the Chinese government they're going to put in a liquidation. Wow. Right, so this and, and the debt there is absolutely horrendous. Are they allowing this to happen, Willie? Well, I don't know what's wrong. I don't know if they're trying to send a message or what they're trying to do, but it's all public as to, over the last few weeks, it's been public to the dire situation that China finds itself in. We said the tightening of the belts with local authorities, with um, dropping the ratios that bank need to hold in relation to liabilities. So this is just kind of, you know, another part to that. So it's really interesting, really interesting. So... What about your pal, Elon? Or oh, which one? Elon, how is it going to live now that his wages is going to be cut by $55.8 billion? Oh, that's 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 real wages, Willie. That's right. real wages. But, but what it demonstrates is, is the power of a shareholder. Right? It certainly does. I mean, I was I was reading about this because I, I, I am fascinated by the man, I, I, I must admit. So I think, Willie, when people see that Elon Musk's pay packet's been cut by $55 billion. I don't think MD would go, well, that's that's no fair. But here's some of the facts. So this was agreed in 2018 by the board of directors of Tesla. And the market cap, so that's the market worth of Tesla, was about $60 billion. Um, Elon said, if I can get this company to be 10 times that worth, so... $600 billion, I just want less than 10% of it, which is not a bad deal, actually, Willie, because the shareholders will have got 10 times their money yep. during that time. Bite his hand off. And bite his hand off. But a few of them, not all of them, have taken it to court. And I'm afraid in Delaware, he came up against the same judge who made him buy Twitter, which is a judge, Kathleen McCormick. Yes. <laughs> she is very feisty, and she was the one who said, no, you said you were buying Twitter, you are legally obliged to buy it. So he is up against a very feisty judge, and, you know, what's he going to do? So, as ever, the headline's one thing, the facts are a different... But, Willie, do you think 
Anybody is worth fifty-five billion. No, I don't. I don't. I don't. I don't. And I think anybody. Obviously, he has expensive tastes, you know. So at least that uh, his bonus will pay the help pay for the forty-four billion that he had to pay for Twitter or X, as it's now known. But it's interesting. We should maybe explain this to the listeners. They're obviously registered in Delaware. Yeah. And the reason why loads of companies, hundreds of thousands of companies in America, are all registered in Delaware is because there's a tax advantage. Yeah. Right? And it's a more business-friendly environment. Yes. Supposed yes. to be. Yes. Supposed to be. But what he has threatened is because of that now, he's thinking about taking the head office to Texas. Texas. The Lone <laughs> yes. Star State. Yeah, so that'll be interesting. But, I mean... Elon's also been busy with a company that he's involved with called Neuralink. Yes. Now, he has he has said this week that this company has put a wireless brain chip into a human. Yes. And, and what the company's trying to do, it's trying to link human brains to computers to tackle complex neurological conditions. Yes. Now, this is where the genius of the man kicks in. How many of the rest of us would even think about that? <laughs> yes, and, and to be fair, it's actually to help people who have neurological problems. Yes, that's it. Right, so which is fantastic. If it's a step forward there, it would be amazing. That So people who are finding it hard to communicate with this chip fitted, if it works, will be able to communicate through a mobile Right, which is which is amazing, or a device, which is fantastic. So, so I certainly hope that that one's successful. Yeah. So there we go. We are starting the show with a disagreement. Yeah. I am going to say I'm going to go out on a limb here and say, if a company I'm involved with gives me ten times my investment, I'm willing to give the super founder um, less than ten percent of that. There we go. And why am I not surprised at that? <laughs> Here's what I've been dying to discuss with you all week because, obviously, to be fair, you make it known that you don't know a lot about football. I don't. Right? So you're the perfect guy to ask. <laughs> so so for years and years, because it's a business question in relation to football, so for years and years, the, the rules in football is that you couldn't have joint ownership of clubs. I okay? see, right. But over the last 10 years, Europe, all the clubs in Italy and France that are struggling have you know, allowed people to buy clubs that owned other clubs and all sorts of things. So Jim Radcliffe owned a part of a French club before he bought 25% of Manchester United in the last few weeks. I okay? see. Right. So now um, that it's been tested a couple of times in Scotland, and just this week, an American billionaire has bought into Hibernian. Oh, the hips, right? right. The okay. same, yeah. So the same man, Bill Foley, who owns Brentford, has bought a, I believe, a, a, a minority stake. And there's a rule that he, he can't own more than twenty nine percent. Right. But so, so what this is about now is that they want to buy because they want feeder clubs, right? Right. Now, a lot of people might be against this, but I think that this may end up being a good thing, and I'll tell you why. Because for too many years, Scottish clubs. All Scottish clubs have been investing in their academies and their youth setups, all of this stuff. Yep. And only after years and years of coaching and training, when a kid gets to maybe it'd be worth something, that the English clubs come up and they take them away for not a lot of money. I see. So I think that this may be a way, that it may be a good idea where if 
all the clubs had tie-ups with rich millionaire owners, especially if they also own bigger clubs. Then what they're doing here, Tom, is they're buying windows. You know, so it's everywhere's a showroom. For the Americans, everywhere's a showroom and put your products in show. So you may have them at one division uh, at Hibernian this week, but then you could take them out and play them for Brentford the following season. So if, you do, if you're a really good young player at Hibs, let's say the boy Josh Doig this week, who's reportedly going to move for four and a half, five million, which I think he has done in Italy. Uh-huh. Then if that kid was playing for Brentford, there's a chance you would get 15 or 25 million. Right. Well, I mean, Willie, without knowing about the rules of football, surely if they don't play in the same league or the same, you know, jurisdiction, what's what's the problem, I would say? Yeah. Um, and if it's encouraging youth to come through, that surely that's what we've got to do because you've told me in the past that maybe Scottish football, you know, in the past has not benefited because people weren't bringing through the youth. But yeah. now, you know, if people are investing and um, maybe we should bring on one of my business partners, Jim McMahon, who's trying to make sure Motherwell Football Club is in good hands before he leaves as chairman. And he did a great um, advert, um, tongue-in-cheek, where he was asking Taylor Swift if, if she wanted to buy Motherwell. <laughs> um, surely, in order to put the Scottish game in a good financial footing, encourage the youth in Scotland, it must be a good thing, Willie. Well, I think money coming in as an investment coming into the club to be used by the club and not going to shareholders has got to be a good idea. Aye. So I am all for that, even though I don't really know what I'm talking about. But hasn't he stopped me in the past? Well, watch this space. So can I bring you back to the Scottish Licensed Trade Association this week? So they obviously represent pubs and restaurants and hospitality businesses in Scotland. And they went out to their members, I think they've got over 500 members, to to say, what do you think with the backing of the government? And 96%, I mean, this this is unprecedented, 96% um, of those responding said they felt the Scottish government was out of touch and didn't understand the Scottish licensed trade association and what they were trying to do and coupled with that i understand this because it came out this week as well that circularity scotland this company set up by lorna slater a scottish green msp with absolutely no business experience that is folded owing 70 million 70 million pounds Willie. So that is taxpayers' money has been squandered here. So, I mean, what do you think of it all? Well, I just hope the people of Scotland are clever enough to see people like Lorna Slayer who are making these decisions that are costing the taxpayer millions. Think how many policemen or nurses that that would have paid for were these policies that are introducing are absolutely bonkers costing all of this money. I hope they remember that when it comes to voting day. And it doesn't matter that whatever you're calling yourself, whatever party you're supposed to be representing, at the end of the day, if you're the person that's standing up there taking all the credit for introducing this policy, for helping put this company together, 
Remember, they kept stating it was, the company was put together by industry. Industry absolutely hated the thing when it was so... I'd love to, or, to come on and talk that one through me, how industry helped put this company together. It's a disgrace and it should not be forgotten by the people of Scotland. No, I mean, this is what we talk about all the time in the show. If we've got ministers making policy without bringing along the people it's going to affect the most, i.e. the hospitality trade in this occasion, the deposit return scheme folds, costs £70 Who's held accountable? Well, maybe the voters should hold Lorna Slater accountable. I mean... And a bit of better news in the hospitality trade this week, and I need to declare an interest. I, I do have an investment in Buzzworks, great family business based down in um, Ayrshire. Um, their results were out. You know that business is employing over eight hundred people now. But my question to the Scottish ministers is: when we look at the rates, the business rates which are put on hospitality businesses. If Buzzworks was based in England, they would be getting a 75% discount on their business rates. So therefore, why should companies like Buzzworks, I noticed Innocent Gun had shut another unit in Leith this week saying that it was because of the business rates. But if we just think about this for a second, when a restaurant, a hospitality venue opens. Let's just say it employs 30 people full and part-time. So that's 30 jobs that are created. Those people pay their tax. Those people spend their money in the local economy. And therefore, if the rates are too high, the business rates, then those companies won't do it. I mean, we've got a, a, a young lady on the scale-up programme, Becky, who's got Pure Spa. She said she's £200,000 worse off opening a spa in Scotland as to England. That is stupid economics that shouldn't be allowed to happen. Wake up, Scottish government. Tom, just to finish on this, and I know I've been heavily involved with the Scottish licence trade for years, having my own places in Whitman, and a real good friend of mine, Paul Watson, has been, you know, the, the, the spokesman for this industry for many, many years. Yeah. And um, I was with him a couple of weeks ago and he is literally pulling his hair out. It is, it is absolutely dire. This whole sector, we've got to do whatever we can to try and help this because I believe that there's going to be hundreds, if not thousands, um, of places in Scotland, you know, putting the shutters up if we don't do something to help this sector. Yeah, so come on, Scottish Government, Here's something you could do. You could follow England, the rest of the UK, on the rates for hospitality venues. That would that would do two things. It yeah. would, one, show that these hardworking business folk, that the government's listening, and it would be a boost to our finances. It wouldn't be a drain on them. No. It would be a boost. Well, so, anyway. Well, here's another one that would be a boost. Right, come and on. back to your point about paying people accordingly. Right. So I, I see the, the Labour shadow finance minister <laughs> uh, that we have vowed to unashamedly champion the financial services sector. It's one of the UK's greatest sectors. And what they're saying is, is that they are saying that they would not reinstate the cap on bankers' bonuses if elected. Now, this is a big, big switch for Labour. And I think it's okay. great and, and it's welcome. So what, what do you think of that? Well, listen, 
I think you know what I'm going to say, Willie, is that if someone is really making a difference in a business, then they should be paid accordingly. And I think Labour has been quite savvy here. I'm sure you've been having a word in Rachel Reeves' ear to say, you know, I think it was Tony Blair that always used to say, look, governments only get elected from the centre of the country. They don't get elected from the far right or the far left. It's the centrist policy. And this is Labour trying to say, we're cuddly, we're friendly to business, vote vote for us. Maybe there's an election coming up, Willie. (laughs) (laughs) Well, talking about elections coming up, did you see that the IMF have warned Mr Hunt that that he better not look at at, uh, tax reduction? Yeah, so... This is the IMF, the International Monetary Fund. And, you know, listen, it is an election year in Westminster and politicians can't help themselves by making perhaps not the most prudent financial decisions. They're making political decisions. Well, they are called politicians after all. And I was looking into this, Willie, and... The latest figure says that maybe Jeremy Hunt, there's a budget coming out on the 6th of March. We will cover it on the show. This is a this is a UK budget. And they reckon he's maybe got about £14 billion of fiscal headroom. That that just means he's got £14 billion to play with. Yeah. So a 2% cut, another 2% cut in national insurance would cost about £9 billion. And a two pence cut, an income tax would cost about $13.7 billion. But we need to remember our wonderful Scottish government have six different rates of income tax. We are higher than England and the rest of the UK. And I believe our First Minister has said if England cuts income tax, he's not going to follow. I really believe the Scottish government is taking our country in the wrong direction. Do you think that the Chancellor should be more concerned about the predictions for the lack of growth in the UK over the next two years? And, I mean, there's some different, you know, various numbers coming up this week, you know, from 1.6% to 3.2%. But I, we have said it for weeks and weeks. If we want to tackle all the problems we have, especially the debt problem, it should be all about growth. It should be, Willie. And the IMF are saying that um, Britain is going to be the second worst in the G7. That's just the the big Western economies. The only one, which is unbelievable, worse than us is Germany. And Germany's been a big exporting country and it's been a big growth economy. And the IMF is saying we, that's Great Britain, should be spending our tax on education, on infrastructure to encourage growth and on energy transition. Now, I kind of agree with that, but we're in election year and financial decisions will be made for political outcomes. <laughs> so let's finish on a, on a, on a wee funny. I sent, you a wee, I sent you a wee clip this week. What did you think of the, the, the wee segment on Scotland Today about the two lads who were in the, the gutty industry, the boys who were selling trainers? Willie, I was, did you see that? Willie, I was gutted when you sent it to me. <laughs> so we need to tell our listeners. Right, on you go, on you go, because you, you, you sent you, me this. Right. On, on WhatsApp, Willie, 
Two separate companies on WhatsApp, yeah? Well, I can right. I just say I did not delete that on WhatsApp. Yeah. Um, if I had to stand in front of a judge, I'm telling you now, I did not delete it. Tom, can I use that wee, that wee piece that you put in here to send a question out? Right. <laughs> See if there's anybody listening to the show. Uh, can I ask a question? See if the COVID inquiry became a criminal inquiry. Oh, is it not a case that you can get everything back that's been deleted? So some expert that's listening to the show, please send us an email because I think there may be a few people trembling in their boots uh, at the prospect of those uh, emails getting getting <laughs> getting found again. Or these texts, sorry. Well, I have always been told by my IT professionals that these things don't just disappear. Yeah. Right, so let's tell the people about the two lads, two different companies yep. involved in the... So the first company is a, a young lad who's got a company who actually will take your dirty trainers once you've been to a gig, you know, you've been out in the mud, and they do this fantastic job of bringing them back to new. Fantastic story. That was the first story, but the second one is the one that really <laughs> interests me I sent it to Tom. Another young lad uh, who's got this shoes empire... Um, where he's selling trainers, and some of the trainers are £1,500. £1,500. And some are £1,000, and they're all trending, and he said, oh, we've got uh, hundreds of pairs of these, so I, I hope his stockroom is, is well guarded. Well, I've been trying to coach my son, Jamie, who, as you know, has joined West Coast Capital, yeah. and I say to him, life and business is all about timing, yeah. and maybe I sold out too early. Well, <laughs> the Go Radio Business Show with Hunter and Hockey. This week's special guest is Mark Bamforth, who's currently mentoring and investing in Scottish and US-based entrepreneurs, and is a general partner in an antimicrobial resistance, which is supporting early-stage AMR companies. Tom, this week we have a very special guest, yes. Mark Bamforth. Yes. From Serial Biotech. He's a Serial Biotech entrepreneur and investor with many stories to tell. Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you, Willie. It's a pleasure to be on the show. So, Mark, it's brilliant that you've came on the show. We've we've met only once and um, I'm delighted that you're on because you're another one of these entrepreneurs who sail under the radar, but the Go Radio Business Show is going to make you a star now. And um, you are really giving back to Scotland big time. So I can't wait for the listeners to hear all about your story. So on you go. Oh, thank, thank you very much. Um, well, I, I was brought up in Glasgow and, and went to Shawland Primary and Academy. And then I went on to Strathclyde University. So I stayed in Glasgow till I was about 21, graduated with a degree in chemical engineering and I went into the oil industry, which at that time was booming. Moved to Aberdeen, uh, went offshore, uh, both exploring for oil uh, in the Irish Sea as well as producing oil in the North Sea. Um, and it was an incredible experience, a uh, very, very different work environment from most jobs. However, the oil price crashed. And when it crashed, um, my company laid off half the workforce. And so I found myself redundant. Right, And there were no jobs anywhere in the world. I, I discovered the world for adverts for oil jobs. And because of the oil price being global, everywhere contracted for about six months or so. Right. So I left the industry and I joined a brewing company. And I'd had the good fortune when I was at Strathclyde University in my final summer 
to be able to work with the engineering division of this brewing company. And that was an incredible education, working with a very experienced engineer, uh, 20 plus years experience, but he'd actually never used computers. And I got the opportunity to borrow a computer from Strathclyde and do work with them. And so fast forward three years, I went back to him and said, hey, I see you have this opening. I'd be interested. And I ended up joining them, uh, but based down in Luton, just north of London. All right. And what was the company, Mark? The company was Whitbread. Oh, Whitbread, of course, yes. They owned Long John International, yep. which is not a brand of uh, underwear, uh, <laughs> but in fact was a, was a whiskey company. And so I, I, I joined uh, Whitbread in England. Half my work was back in Scotland with Long John, and then the other half was running a biotech project. And that got me interested in what was happening in that field. And it was really just the start of biotech, our understanding of biology and how to how to treat diseases. And I had the good fortune to join a small company, an American company, that had two sites in England, one near Maidstone and Kent and one near near Cambridge. And I stayed with them for 22 years. I did an MBA. Wow. Wow. And Mark... Can I ask, it's quite a jumper, maybe it's not, maybe it's my ignorance here, from um, whiskey and beer to biotech. So did, did, did you join Genzyme because of the interest in the work or because you thought you could make a lot of money here? No, I, I mean, I, I, I wanted to make a living, of course, but um the oil industry had been very lucrative because you get paid high salaries for living right. in hostile environments. So, yeah. you know, having left that industry, uh, it took me probably five years to get back to the same salary I'd had working offshore. So, you know, it was never motivated by money. In fact, the company I joined was kind of very tight. Um, you know, we weren't <laughs> flush. We weren't flush with money. Um, the the assistant, our secretary, as she was called in those days was still using a typewriter with um, carbon paper to make copies of wow. meeting minutes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and no, the connection really was, you know, obviously brewing companies ferment. Um, and so th there was uh, a view within the brewing company that biotechnology was something that was more natural for them to explore and get into. And and uh, I did run a small biotech project for them. And that's really what opened my eyes up to the real potential. And joining a company that was focused on biotech made a lot of sense. Right. So, and, and just for the just for the yeah. listeners this morning, Mark, you joined this company. It was very small, but you you stayed there for 22 years. So give the Give the listeners a feel for the size when you joined and the size when you left. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was about 250 people when I joined. And some of those people were in Massachusetts running a clinical unit there. Uh -huh. and, the, and the headquarters was in Massachusetts. And then, and then the rest, maybe around 150, were at these two sites in England uh, manufacturing products. Uh -huh. um, and when I left, it was 12,000 people. Wow. Um, and when I started there, I was running a team of six people that were doing the manufacturing support, capital projects, process improvements, that kind of thing. Uh, and when I left, I was running uh, global manufacturing, which had grown to be a dozen sites and about 3,600 employees. So it was just an incredible opportunity to grow 
with an industry and with a company that was a leader in the industry and did very many innovative things. Um, wow. What, what made you leave? Well, I was, running, I was running the two sites in the UK by the end of the 90s. And so there wasn't another role to progress to beyond there. And I, I wasn't sure what the future held. And then my boss in the US said he was going to move into a different role. And wouldn't I like to come and work in the States? And my wife and I, we'd lived near London for 14 years at that point. We had two young kids and we thought, wow, that would be that would be interesting, if not a great experience. And so we, we jumped at it. Right. And then then what's what's the next part of the journey, Mark? What's happening next? Well, so 2010, uh, we, we had a bit of a train wreck. Uh, unfortunately, we had a contamination in a new facility we were building in Europe. And right. then we had the same, the same contamination occurred at our largest commercial facility, which was in Massachusetts. And that led to us having to shut capacity down, which led to us having a shortage of supply for pay, for patients, uh, which of course is really our whole raison d'etre was getting these products to patients. And so that led to a lot of change and actually led to the company being acquired by Sanofi, a large uh, European-based oh, yeah. pharmaceutical company. Yeah. And um, and I, I left at that time of all that turmoil. Right. Okay. So I mean, if it's not too hard a question, was that your decision or were you pushed? <laughs> um, basically, the CEO at that time, uh, who'd been there for almost three decades, uh, Henry Tamir, uh, an exceptional entrepreneur and leader, um, he he felt he had to bring someone else in who dealt with some of the crises that we had. Whereas I was learning on the job, even though I had a lot of experience, some of the things we were dealing with, I hadn't dealt with before and some of the regulatory challenges that we had. And so I was offered a, a different role, uh, but but I realized it was better for me to leave and let a new new leader come in and, and uh, take charge of it all. And, you know, I, I had a lengthy transition, about six months, which allowed me time to hand things over to this new person who came in, but also allowed me to think about my future and what I wanted to do. Yeah, so I think this is a really interesting point, and, and thanks for your honesty this morning. I think for all the listeners out there, every successful entrepreneur I've ever met has had a point where their life can go one way or their life can go another way. So I think this this is quite a turn in the road for you, because you could have probably re retired because you'd been successful, you'd been there a long time, and this created an opportunity, although you maybe not have thought of it that way at the time. So update the listeners what happened then. Sure. Well, just to be clear, I couldn't have retired. So oh, I, was 40, right. okay. I was 47. <laughs> I had a large mortgage. Um, ah. I had two, kid, two kids in, in school. And if you know the cost of going on to higher education in America is very steep. And so, I, you know, I really, I owed it to my family to try to figure out what was next. Um, and what, one of the interesting things is that I was involved in the startup of the Saltar Foundation ah, in uh, right. the late the late noughts, um, which became Entrepreneurial Scotland. And 
I was at Babson College, the number one entrepreneurship right. university uh, in, in the I, world. I love Babson. Absolutely. It's yeah. a great place. So I was there visiting with a class of uh, students. And these are mature students, 30s, early 40s, who were there. And the, and the professor said to me, well, tell them about the journey you're on. And I said to him, but I'm not, I'm not at an outcome yet. He said, no, that's not the point. I want you to tell them about the journey you're on. <laughs> I thought, oh, okay. So I'm sharing with this class these challenges I'm going through and trying to figure out what's next. And, uh, and at the end of it, the professor said to me, that's very good. Come back in six months and tell the class where, where you've got to. What happens, so, yes. Exactly. So it was a difficult transition from having been in a corporate role for 22 years to then starting my own business wow. and finding investors that would back me. Yep. First of all, I was coming with some baggage in terms of well, what happened in the previous role. And um, to then I also found that a lot of investors, that they want a sure bet. They want to invest in CEOs who've already built companies, not somebody who's not done it before. Yeah. And so I, I found it took me 13 months to get from an idea to actually bring it to fruition, uh, during right. which time I'm not getting paid. And in fact, the opposite, I'm actually investing what, what we had and trying to make this idea a reality. But but I was I was inspired by all the people who were at Babs and, and the, the commitment they made to change themselves. Mark, tell the listeners the name of the company and why you called it that. <laughs> <laughs> so so the first company I founded was called Gallus Biopharmaceuticals. <laughs> and right. you you and many of the listeners will appreciate where Gallus comes from at west coast of Scotland. Yep. Uh expression some someone who's a bit daring. But of swagger maybe a bit cheeky. Bit of swagger. Um, it, it took it took it took my head of business development six months to figure out that it was a Scottish word. And she came in to me one day and she said, "I found on the internet this is a Ouija word. What does that mean?" <laughs> so I had to had to come clean and explain where it came from. But my, my wife actually came up with that name. Um, and I thought, "Wow, that's it. That's the perfect name." So tell us about Gallus. Well, so so we we spun a site out of a large pharma company, Johnson and Johnson, and we brought 160 people with it, and we were making two products for that company, commercial products, and we had to build out the team, but take it from being a site, take it from being a site operation to being a business. So we had to add business development people. Um, we had to add a process development team for the entry of new clients into the site. Uh, and we had to invest capital as well to build out space to host new clients coming in. So it took a couple of years to really start to get traction. But then then we started motoring and we were really building that business nicely. Um, and in our fourth year of operation, we, we were uh, we were sold to a larger company. Can I go back? How did you finance it? Well, um, we financed it uh, primarily through a private equity company that chose to invest in us. But that was the most difficult thing, was finding somebody who would trust me and who would invest in this space. So that's what really took the 13 months. Plus, we had support from the local government there because we were saving jobs because the threat was the site was going to be closed otherwise. 
so some really good local government support, both state level and, and the uh, local county and city. And where was that based? It was based in St. Louis, in St. Louis. Uh, Missouri. So right. kind of mid- middle America, if you like. Yes. So, Mark, can I ask you, what was your biggest challenges going from working in a company to actually, it's your company and you're now the leader. So what were some of the challenges that you faced and how did you overcome them? Yeah, so we, we had a clear view of what we wanted to do, the area we were in, the technology we were going to use. So we weren't questioning that. Um, that was the foundation of the company. But the, the, the great thing we had was this team of 160 people who had were really committed you know, wanted to do a good job, but they come out of a large pharma company. And and Johnson Johnson is one of the largest companies in the world and a great company, very ethical, uh, very, very strong uh, sense of how they wanted to work and their way of working. We had to take that corporate body, that organization with that mindset and now make it entrepreneurial. And so we spent a lot of time with across the whole organization talking about what do we want to keep, what's really important for the future, and what do we want to change? Because there was no longer a mothership. There was no longer this super organization sitting above this site, giving it directions and giving it resources. It was us. We, we were the organization, yep. but needed a little bit of change of, of mindset. Um, so that, that was the key challenge for the first first few months. Right. Okay. So how did you come to eventually sell it? Were you looking to sell or did somebody come along? Well, it's interesting. So so Johnson & Johnson, as I said, they were looking to exit this site because they, they basically didn't need it. They could see in, in a number of years' time they wouldn't need the capacity. That's why they wanted to exit from it. And so we had a contract of a certain length and they had some renewal options. Um but it wasn't clear, and you know, until they did it, that they would renew anything. Right. Um, and so our, our investors were worried that um, we started the business with they were a hundred percent of our business. By the time we sold, they were less than fifty percent, but still the same value. So we'd grown the business, in other words. Right. And our investors were concerned that well, if if they don't renew and they exit, then are we suddenly going to be in a position where it's going to take another three years to fill that hole to rebuild the business? And so they, they were nervous about that. Um, I personally thought there was there was an opportunity to combine what we were doing with another company, which would have made us bigger. Um, but that wasn't the preferred pathway. And so that's, that's why we ended up uh, looking at who might want to own the business and eventually sold. So after you sold to Parfian, um, you know, you've got a few dollars in your pocket. Did you put your feet up or yeah. what did you do next? No. Um, <laughs> the, the CFO at, at Genzyme used to say, you know, what one data point doesn't make a trend. In fact, two data points don't make a trend. You really need three data points to make a trend. So I was in my early 50s and I could have at that point put my feet up, but what, what the heck would I have done? So... I wanted to prove that this wasn't a fluke and that I could do it again. So I spent another about 13 months getting the second business uh, up and running in a different sector, but with still within life sciences and contract manufacturing. And what was the name of that company, Mark? 
what I'm coming to is called Brammer Bile. And <laughs> that sounds like another name your wife. That's a Brammer. Bra- Brammer, Brammer and Gallus. <laughs> exactly. No, it was, it was actually uh, a friend of uh, my father-in-law who uh, suggested it and thought, wow, there's another great name. Let's use that one. Right. Um, so off you go again. You can see a pattern here, yes, right? Yes. So yeah. off we go again. And, and, and this, this time we acquired a business that was uh, in Florida which had already got a private equity company on board who'd invested in them about six months earlier. So we started with about 100 people that time. And we were in an area that just exploded. Uh, Cell and gene therapy just became a very hot area with the potential of curing diseases with one treatment um, of, uh, of patients. And so we suddenly found incredible pressure to grow and we invested a huge sum of money, uh, which some of it came from the clients, some of it came from borrowings, some of it came from the equity, and we were also making money. So we grew tremendously from about 100 people to over 600 people over three years. Wow. And, and we actually knew we had to double again in size. And so at that moment, we said, if we're going to double again in size to 1,200 plus people, that's going to take a lot more financing and it's going to take a lot more um, growth of the organization and the leadership team. And again, with our investors this time, we decided that we should test the market because there are others who could probably grow this better than we could. And we ended up selling to Thermo Fisher. Thermo Fisher, right. Who, by the way, had bought Patheon, the company that had bought <laughs> my first business right. uh, in, the, in the interim. Wow. Right. So tell me, because I got it wrong the first time. Are you putting your feet up now? No, no, because right. remember, okay. two data points don't make a trend. We need a third <laughs> data point. So I started the third company, and and this time, because I've figured out how to do it, I managed to do it in six months instead of 13 months. Um, right. And this one was called was called Aranta Bio, and Aranta is derived from a, a Gaelic word, uh, basically meaning the, the best you can have, uh, best in class. Right. And, and my wife found that one uh, just to give full credit. And so we were focused on another area called the microbiome, which is growing bacteria. And we uh, we grew that business and we had an unsolicited bid for that business just about two years ago. So we weren't planning to sell. We hadn't discussed selling the business, but uh, a company came along and said, we like what you're building here and we'd, we'd like to own it. And <laughs> That was an interesting moment because it was kind of a bird in the hand versus two in the bush. Did we wait another couple of years, which was the original plan? Um, or did we go now and we decided to take that opportunity and and that's what we did. So that business sold just about two years ago. But I mean, wow. So is that the three data points you needed? Exactly. Exactly. So, so what are you doing now, um, Mark? I know you're... Um, you're giving back to Strathclyde University. You're a big supporter of Entrepreneurial Scotland and the Saltire Foundation. So thank you for all of that. Yes. What 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 kind of other things? Are you still living in America? Yes, I'm still living in America. I visit Scotland quite frequently to see family and to see businesses. So really there's three three things I'm doing. Um, that my main focus is I'm now a general partner in a fund that we started and the fund is to support early stage companies who are working on antimicrobial resistance. 
So antimicrobial resistance or superbugs uh, are what we get because of the overuse of antibiotics or the misuse of them. Um, and this is predicted to be, it's a big problem now, but it's predicted to become a huge problem. World Health Organization thinks by 2050, 10 million people a year will be dying from antimicrobial resistance. Wow. In other words, they have they have an infection that we can't treat. Wow. Uh-huh. And that's that's as many people as die from cancer. But we're investing 5% of the research dollars in this space compared to what we're putting into cancer research. Wow. Right. So we created a fund to try to help companies uh, who are pioneers in this space. So that's one of the things I do. And then the other one is... Um, I work with about half a dozen companies on their boards or supporting their CEOs, um, primarily life sciences, and they're half in the US and half in Scotland. Right. Wow. So, Mark, let me ask you, how healthy do you think this sector is in Scotland? Is there any exciting companies there? Um, There are exciting companies there. I think there's no shortage of good ideas and people who are able to take the first steps with them. I think the biggest challenge that Scotland faces is sustaining those businesses, especially in life sciences. Um, you know, the, it typically takes hundreds of millions of pounds to, to fully mature these businesses. And we typically struggle to find the investors to make those investments. And instead, those businesses get sold at an earlier stage and sometimes the research base stays in Scotland, but often other parts of the organization end up elsewhere doing the manufacturing or doing the commercialization. Right. Okay. Well, wow. It's quite a story, Mark. Quite Mark, a story. Unbelievable. And uh, I couldn't believe it that the time has went. Uh, can I just say it's been a pleasure talking to you. What a story. Thank you so much for coming on the show and more power to your elbow. Keep doing what you're doing for Scotland. We need more of that. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure talking to you both. Thank you, Mark. And we look forward when you're back in Scotland to meet up. And um, thanks for everything you do for Entrepreneurial Scotland and Strathclyde University, etc. Um, good luck and hope to see you soon. The board you can't afford. This is the Go Radio Business Show with Hunter and Hockey. This week on the board you can't afford, we have James Grant, the founder of Investment Tribe. Welcome, James. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Morning, James. Good morning, Tom. I'm very well, thank you? you. Very well. Good man. Good man. Tell us a bit about your business. So, yeah, let me just give you a bit of background on my journey so far and the business. So I've been exposed to property investment and management since I could pretty much walk, living on building sites, doing viewings, and probably a bit too much painting for my own good. Um, From the age of about 10, I thought property investment was a great idea um, because I love the idea of generating rental income with a capital appreciation, and I couldn't really understand why more people didn't do it. It was only when I reached my early teens that I figured out that the core issue was the initial capital requirements. So let's wind the clock forward about 15 years. I came up with the idea for Investment Tribe. Our purpose is to provide fractional access to the property market for those who have been historically excluded, while also providing safe, affordable rental accommodation for tenants that you'd be happy to live in yourself. Our solution is our platform that allows investment from £1,000 in a portfolio of properties, and we manage all of the operational processes from the legal work to the ongoing management. Investors typically receive rental income through dividends and a lump sum when they decide to sell. 
When I started out the journey, I thought it was going to be easy, a bit of a cakewalk. But turns out starting a regulated investment business is a bit of a pain. It's got a lot of complicated points. That being said, we've had some incredible highs along the way too, including a large grant from Innovate UK and a mission into the FCA Innovation Sandbox. And we're doing our first ever funding round at the moment, which is ongoing, which is all very exciting. And we anticipate going live in the next 8 to 12 weeks with the FCA Sandbox testing ahead of our full market launch. Brilliant. That's a very slick presentation, James. Sounds interesting. I must, I must tell you. Thank you very that much. Is, that is good. Have you have you raised any on this basis of, you know, potentially you can you know, invest as little as a thousand? Have you raised any money? Is this your first go now? Yes. So because we're a regulated business, we obviously need to get our FCA approvals before yeah. we're allowed to go to the market and bring in investment. Otherwise, we'd be breaking the rules. So um, I've been kind of sitting on my hands for quite a few years now, really excited about this product and bringing it to the market. Yeah. But I must tell the listeners, it's, it's quite a feat to get an FCA approval. So you must have jump through all the hoops. I remember when we had to do it many, many years ago. So what do, what do you think, uh, you know, the, the the potential is here? I mean, it sounds like crowdfunding for property, right, really at this level. So uh, have you done any research as to you think how this may go? I mean, you're going to get millions flooding in or you're going to get a few grand. What do you think? So obviously the dream is to just basically open up a new market for people who've been excluded. Um, crowdfunding was the first kind of industry that tried to do that. However, what kind of happened with that is there was a lot of bad players in that market. There was a lot of debt. And then as soon as there's any sort of downturn, there was a major like impact on the investors. The FCA just clamped down so hard on that. So what we kind of want to do is just provide access to the market in a nice, easy way through a, a web-based platform. Yeah. Right. So what's your question for me and Tom this morning? So my question for you is, what is the most significant lesson you've learned about balancing innovation and risk? Great question. Wow. Thank you. Me and my dog were working on it this morning. <laughs> Raleigh, do you want to take it? Yeah, all I can tell you is that uh, in, in my past, um, if I tell you about some of the things that I thought were innovative and were like groundbreaking, like, you know, way back in the times of bottle cooling cabinets when we come up with this, I thought it was going to take over the world. And nobody, <laughs> nobody thought it was a good idea. I, I was never so disillusioned. But I, I think that the the balance, you say, that, you know, the between innovation and risk is, is that it's even tougher when you're asking people, other people to give you money when you've not had a track record. So it's... It, I don't know what Tom thinks, but it's kind of it's kind of hard to kind of answer that question. Um, I've not had really that much experience of that. I've had, a, I've, I've had a bit of both, but not when you're trying to balance the two. So what, I don't know, Tom, do you have any ideas? So I think I, I can answer it generally, James, maybe not specifically for you because I don't know you nor the business, but one of the things that we coach in the Scale Up Scotland programmes is, is learning by doing and if you're going to fail and and let's face it all of us have failures you want to fail quick and you want to fail cheap so you don't bet the ranch um very few successful entrepreneurs that i know are bet the ranch sort of guys they have this maybe reputation but the best entrepreneurs i meet are really risk managers they understand the downside. The upside always takes care of itself. And therefore, 
give it a go. What could happen if this fails, then just make sure it's not going to kill you. Learn from that and get back on with that learning. I know these are only words, but that's kind of what I've done all the way through my career. And the really successful, big entrepreneurs um, really are risk managers. They understand the downsides. So what do you think, James? Yeah, I was kind of scared about answering my own question there. Um, I think it's one of these things where you need to you need to kind of show a path and show you're willing to commit to the path because that then kind of mitigates the risk, I feel, in other people's minds if you're willing to commit, but as long as, as you say, you're not betting the ranch on it. Yeah. yeah. Observations, not advice on the question, but obviously you're a startup, right? So that's a negative. But the big, big positive is your FCA approved. That's huge. You've got to, you've got to weigh right on on that. Hopefully that very soon. you can soon. be trusted. Oh, hopefully very yeah, soon. Yeah, we're in the right, okay. innovation sandbox, right, okay, so we're, right. we're on the process. Okay. All right, so good luck with that. Good luck with that. But if you get that, that's a big, big selling point. The only thing I would say is you know that because you are a startup and you are, this will be a slow burner. You know, it'll take time to build up. So, you you know, hopefully you've got enough money to get a, one property or two properties, but you're going to have to build up a reputation and again, I, I don't know of anyone who's ever done this in the past. So this is the innovation of what you're talking about. But uh, I, I wish you every success with it. And please, uh, it'd be interesting if you keep in touch and let us know if you manage to get your FCA and then you manage to get some funds and it'd be great to, you know, come back on and tell us how you're doing. Absolutely. I'd love to. Do you want to tell the listeners, you know, that so if it does come to fruition, how, how did they get in touch with you? What do they want to do if they want to invest? Sure. So um, we're in the FCA Innovation Sandbox at the moment. So that means that we're going to move towards live testing in the next eight to 12 weeks yeah. and the FCA are going to kind of monitor how we're doing and if we do well at that, we're buying a garage first just to test the concept. Yeah. Um, then we'll open up to the market and they just go onto our platform, investmenttribe.co, and um, they can create an account and invest. Okay. Wow. Brilliant. Well, good luck. Please, once you get this license, come back on, tell us how it's going because the listeners love to hear these stories of people really believing in themselves and taking on the world. So good luck to you, son. Thank you very much. And me and Tom have got plenty of houses we can sell you. <laughs> Love that. <laughs> Good luck. The Go Radio Business Show with Hunter and Hockey. Hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and never miss an episode. Go.